News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Canadians say they want to see more funding for health care. Premiers have been saying that for a while now, and it looks like there's going to be movement on that front. Today in Ottawa, the premiers are meeting with the Prime Minister. Health care is on the agenda. So what do we know about a potential deal? Mackenzie Gray with Global National in Ottawa joins us now. Good morning. Hi, Simi. Okay, so what do we know? We keep hearing rumours of a deal. What does this entail? Well, we don't have a deal yet, but we're going to have an offer from the federal government to the premiers, and that's the first time we've had that since this kind of latest round of discussions about health care is coming up. And this is what we know, according to sources that I spoke with yesterday at the federal level. There's going to be two parts of the deal that Justin Trudeau is going to bring to the premiers this afternoon. First part is an increase to the Canada health transfer, and that's the main way the federal government right now gives money to the provinces. The provincial ask has been for the federal government through the Canada health transfer to pay 35% of all health care costs, don't expect the number is going to get that high, but it's going to come up from the 22% where it's at right now. The second part of the deal is going to be that Justin Trudeau wants to cut bilateral deals with each provinces to talk about specific things that they want to deal with. In Atlantic Canada, one of the big issues there is literally just keeping hospitals open, ERs, emergency rooms, all kinds of other issues there. They can't stay open. Maybe that's an issue they deal with there. In Ontario, there's issues with surgical backlogs. Maybe that's an issue that they deal with there. Justin Trudeau wants flexibility to be able to focus on specific things, and many of the premiers are in agreement with that as well. There'll be two conditions at a minimum that we know of on this. The money has to be spent in the public system. We've seen here in Ontario that Doug Ford has been cutting deals recently with for-profit clinics. I know in BC there's similar agreements with different for-profit clinics. This federal money cannot be used on that. The other thing that Justin Trudeau wants from the provinces is them to share data between themselves and the federal government to and try to improve outcomes and modernize the health system. So that's the, the part of the offer that we're going to know or uh, going to see later today from Justin Trudeau. We don't have the exact figure on money right now, but it will be many, many billions of dollars. Okay, so this sounds like a combination then of what both sides were looking for, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, we'd heard from the provinces that 35% of uh, health care spending number, they wanted no conditions attached. But, you know, many of the premiers that we heard uh, who arrived here yesterday in Ottawa were fairly amenable to, at a minimum, the sharing of data. Even uh, Premier of Quebec, Francois Legault, who is, you know, uh, as a Premier of Quebec, famously not wanting federal conditions on federal money, said, well, you know, I don't want conditions, but uh, if that's one of them, we can accept that. Uh, I think there's a recognition, certainly during the pandemic, uh, of a healthcare system kind of from an administrative side that is broken, uh, not to say from a healthcare perspective too, in delivering services that there are issues, but with facts and scenes being used and inability to share data between the provinces and with the federal government, I think that's something that uh, even if the federal government wasn't putting that as a condition, I think a lot of premiers would be on board with to try and make the system work better for them with the existing money that they have. Okay, so then what is going to be happening then today, Mac? Is there going to be a big announcement, a press conference? How is this going to work? Uh, I would not expect that. There's going to be a press conference we're going to hear from the Prime Minister later today about 5.30 Eastern. Uh, the premiers will talk at some point in time. Uh, but don't expect that there's going to be a deal done, that uh, Justin Trudeau is going to walk in this room, uh, offer this deal to the premiers, and they're going to say, great, sounds good. Uh, even yesterday, the Prime Minister admitted it's going to take uh, a number of weeks more to finalize deals. Uh, the goal we've been hearing from the federal side is that they want all the deals, the side deals they're talking about, those bilateral agreements with the provinces done in time for the budget. We don't know when the budget is, but it'll be sometime either in Uh, late March or early April, likely. So there is some runway for them to get those deals done. But I think the best case scenario when I've talked with uh, folks on the federal side and the provincial side is that there is, you know, a general agreement on a framework today that the provinces would be okay with the outline that Justin Trudeau has brought forward or the federal government comes to some kind of compromise with them on a a framework that all sides 
Okay. And so what indications are there from the federal government on this in terms of the amount of money that is going to be spent here? Because it's, it's almost budget time for them, too. Yeah, I mean, look, we've heard from Christian Freeland saying that they basically need to tighten their belts a little bit. But yeah. I think politically, it's been a, a difficult time for Justin Trudeau. And the premiers also know uh, that health care is a big issue for them. I think all sides recognize that Canadians want to deal on health care. We know that this is a top issue for a lot of Canadians. So a little bit of water in everyone's wine, I think, is what's going to be the big outcome of today. Uh, but, you know, as we've seen with the Liberals at many points in time, uh, there's always a little bit of money left over. And for a top issue like this, I wouldn't be surprised if they can uh, scrounge under the uh, couch cushions and find a couple extra billion dollars to get to the problem. Right. And so do we know how long this deal might last? I've heard that they're talking potentially a 10-year deal here. Yeah, that's what sources have told us, too, that it'll be a 10-year agreement. That's going to be the offer that Justin Trudeau is going to put on the table today. Uh, but we'll see how long provinces want to do that. You know, one thing we heard from uh, Heather Stephenson yesterday, who's the premier of Manitoba, was that they're kind of worried about this idea of a, a fiscal cliff. Uh, I mean, that happens at all different points in time. When deals come to an end, it has to be renegotiated. The provinces uh, obviously want a, as long-term a commitment as possible so they can make funding decisions uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Justin Trudeau is not going to be the prime minister in 10 years, and Heather <laughs> Stephenson probably is not going to be the premier of Manitoba in 10 years. There's going to be a whole new cast of characters you have to negotiate these deals in the future. Wow, that's a huge limb you just went out on. I, I know. I, uh, you know, I don't Careful. like to make predictions. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that, Mackenzie. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That's Mackenzie Gray, our digital broadcast journalist at Global National News, Ottawa, talking about this potential deal. We'll get more details, uh, obviously, later today, as he pointed out. Uh, But this sounds pretty significant, that it's kind of what every side was looking for here. Uh, The the premiers wanted money with no strings attached uh, because they wanted to spend it on what they felt their province needed or needs. And the federal government said, listen, we need something to show for this. We need some kind of outcome that we can demonstrate straight is the reason why we're giving the money. So it sounds like they're going to do both. And it'll be interesting to see what it is exactly they have agreed on. There will be more details. Keep it tuned in here for the very latest. This is Mornings with Simi. With everything else that's been going on on the BC political front lately, good to remember that there's still a lot of negotiating that's going on behind the scenes. Because remember a year ago when all the talk was about All of the different unions that are coming up for bargaining at the same time, well, slowly those deals are happening. We heard about the paramedics deal a few weeks ago, and now the Community Social Services Bargaining Association has reached a tentative agreement too. What does that mean? Let's find out. Stephanie Smith is with us now, president of the BC General Employees Union. Good morning, Stephanie. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so what does this mean exactly? Who does this cover? So the Community Social Services Agreement covers about 19,000 unionized workers. Uh, The BCGU represents about 12,000 of those. And these are workers who uh, work in community social service agencies. You know, they do amazing jobs with most of the or or the most vulnerable people in our province. So um, working with adults who have developmental disabilities, working in Indigenous services, working in supportive housing and women's resources like uh, transition houses and those sorts of services. Okay, and how would you classify negotiations? How did that go? Well, um, (laughs) as you can imagine, it's a very complex group of workers, and uh, there's a number of unions at the table. The bargaining association's large, so it was a very long round of negotiations. This one took almost a year to come together. 
When you have that many like different unions under the same umbrella with different kind of agendas, different obviously requirements for their workers, how do you how do you make that work? Well, uh, you know, we've worked with these unions very closely at other bargaining tables as well. And, you know, I think for community social services, there was a really a shared goal. Um, this is a sector that has been under-resourced and underfunded. Um, you know, we have people who are, you know, occupational therapists or speech and language pathologists who work in this sector who were paid substantially substantially less than if they were in, say, the health science professional agreement. And so there was a real common goal to see parity reached at this table to have wages and compensation and benefits that recognize the incredibly important work that our members in this sector do. And I I think the bargaining committee feels they achieved that. Okay. And I know this is also include uh, daycare workers or some child development centers that are in this? Absolutely. Yes, there are are child care centers that are in what we call multi-service agencies. And because uh, until the new programs that have come through from both the provincial and the federal government, you know, those uh, wages uh, were pretty much dependent upon parent fees. And so, of course, they were falling behind as well. And so um, that was also an important part in this round of bargaining was to ensure that early childhood educators who worked in those centers um, were being compensated appropriately. And what was the priority here for employees and Stephanie? I know that I think many people felt like they, and private and public sector employees, right, felt like they needed to make up some ground this year. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, as I said, because community social services was sort of um, at the lower end in terms of salaries and benefits, um, a lot of it was about recruitment and retention. And interestingly, I think employers shared that goal. They knew how hard it was to hire people into positions. You know, not everybody can do this incredibly uh, emotionally taxing and physically taxing work. And with the cost of living that we've seen for everyone in our province, wages were definitely a priority, uh, both for recruitment and retention purposes, but also to allow people to continue to work in a sector that they love. And was there um, a, a decent wage increase then for workers in this? Well, uh, what we got at this table was the same general wage increases that have been achieved at all of the tables uh, in the broader public sector and in the public sector bargaining. But there were additional monies that were, um, it's called low wage redress, and their commitment to uh, bring parity to workers in the facilities bargaining. Um, In our Indigenous services, for example, there's a commitment now to have parity with their counterparts within the public service. And that's a huge achievement. So it sounds like things went relatively well. And I have to tell you, we don't often hear that. No, you know, um, I guess to some, sometimes there's a benefit to being one of the last big, large sectoral tables. Um, You know, a lot of the heavy lifting was done by our public service bargaining committee last year. And then, you know, our Uh, health facilities, and then, as I said, health science professionals or or allied health. And then our community health sector as well did an incredible job at the table, and they reached a tentative agreement January 15th. It's now out for ratification. And so community social services sort of was able to build on that momentum. So interesting. It just seems like one by one, these are all kind of getting ticked off the list here. So, Stephanie, thank you so much for your time this morning. 
Oh, thank you so very much for having me on. That is Stephanie Smith, president of the BC General Employees Union, uh, one of the unions that is under the umbrella of this uh, large agreement, the Community Social Services Employers Association and the Community Social Services Bargaining Association. They have reached a deal, something like 20,000 workers. And you know what? A year ago, this seemed like it was going to be incredibly challenging. I remember it got a little tough there in the beginning with the very first big union doing their negotiating with the provincial government. But since then... It's just one after another has gotten that deal done, including paramedics, actually, not that long ago, just a few weeks ago. This is Mornings with Simi. This week, we've been hearing about the case where charges have been laid against RCMP officers in Prince George in relation to the death of Dale Culver. It's a horrifying case. If you've read about it, you know that. And one of the concerns is what took so long? Mr. Culver was killed five years ago. Charges were laid last week. Why that long delay? Well, the Independent Investigations Office knows why. They say it's because they need help. They need more resources. And joining us now to talk more about that is the head of the Independent Investigations Office, the Chief Civilian Director, Ronald McDonald. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yes, good morning, Simi. So you're speaking out about this. Is that because of what everybody was saying about the Culver case? Well, yes, I was asked questions as to why it took that long, and there were two components to that. One was the amount of time it took for us to complete our investigation, which we referred to the Crown in final form in 2020. And then there's the time that it took for the Crown to make a decision on whether to approve charges. I can't really speak to that aspect of it, but I can say that the time it took for us to complete our work, and in addition, the time it took for us to complete additional work that um, and and to and to and fro with the crown over the period of time they had to file, is directly related to the fact that our resourcing is uh, very challenged right now. And what does that mean? Well, when I first got here in 2017, the IIO had a caseload that was uh, about uh, averaged around 120 cases a year, and now we're averaging over 200 cases a year over the last three to four years. So, in other words, our our caseload has almost doubled. Uh, our frontline investigator complement right now is set at 30. Um, but we have real issues with our compensation structure. For example, our uh, base pay is about 15% below competitive positions, and we don't pay overtime. These are people who get called out at all hours of the day and night to go to all places of the province to investigate cases. We, don't, we can't pay them overtime under the current structure under the Public Service uh, Act. Um, so as a result of that, we have lost a lot of people. And right now, um, it, even though our current complement is 30, we only have 19 investigators. Our, our complement should be more like 36 to deal with our current caseload. So really, in some ways, we're at, at half strength. Okay, so how do you get that changed then? Like, what is the process? Like, how is this office set up? Well, the process is for me to make representations to government to convince them to do primarily two things. Um, One, change our compensation structure to make it a compensation structure that's more in line with competitive positions. So much more like police agencies and other uh, private groups that use, utilize investigators, professional associations, for example. Um, it, It requires as well an influx of cash to allow us to hire more people and to pay them competitive wages so that we can get them. And thirdly, it requires... Um, a decision to uh, pay overtime. And then also, I guess, fourthly, what we need to do is broaden the pool of people eligible to apply. Right now, for example, we can't hire anybody who's worked as a a very experienced investigator as a police officer in BC in the last five years. And that really limits the pool of available candidates for the work. 
all of these various factors have gone into mean that we have never been fully staffed at 30. We either can't hire enough people to stay or people leave. I've had people leave who go to other places with much better working conditions and no overtime for the same or more money. So we're, we're really challenged. Why the increasing cases, do you think? I mean, that's a pretty dramatic number. Yes, it is. And, you know, I've been asked that many times in addition to having uh, almost twice as many cases. Um, this year, for example, our officer-involved shootings have uh, tripled. Um, in fact, a little more than triple. Their average uh, for our fiscal year is really seven officer-involved shootings. This year, we're, right now, we're already at 23. We have a, a month or so to go in our fiscal year. Um, I can't really explain that. Um, some would suggest, I suppose, that it's a fallout from the pandemic, um, that uh, mental health issues certainly play a role in many of those cases, if not most or all of them. Um, so that may be related, as there is uh, at least anecdotal evidence that uh, mental health issues are increased uh, following the pandemic. So I really don't have a specific answer. I can say, for example, however, that in most of those cases, um, there is a weapon involved. And in many of those cases, that weapon is a firearm, which is has quite unusual. So what leads people to pull guns on police? I don't really know. What has it been like, though, dealing, I know it's been challenging in the beginning, just trying to get information from some police forces. Has that improved? Is there more understanding on the part of different police departments now about your role? Yes, indeed. That's one of the things that we're facing, that was facing the IIO when I first arrived uh, in 2017. And there was some some issues about cooperation or uh, police following or uh, abiding by the duty to cooperate under the Police Act. Uh, As a result of that, we went to court. There was a court decision from our Court of Appeal that made it very clear that the IIO determines what that duty to cooperate means. We published guidelines. And now I can say that for the most part, cooperation from police is not an issue. There's always some issues that we need to address and talk about, but that's uh, that's normal. Um, and um, so that wasn't an issue in this case. Well, that's good. So what about technical expertise? I know that in some in this case, too, you, you there was a lot of information you had to wade through. Absolutely. So one of our real challenges, for example, is hiring uh, persons to do our forensic scene analysis. And that's a skill that is rarely developed anywhere other than in police agencies. So that's always been a challenge for us. We were fortunate. We did have a two-year window from 2019 to 21 that allowed us to hire persons who had worked as police officers in the last five years in BC. Um, And we were able to hire some, but we actually, we only hired four. We had at least another seven who turned down our offers because we weren't competitive enough. So that shows you the challenge of our compensation structure. But we were able to hire some, and um, that's where we get our forensic uh, experience uh, primarily. Are you hopeful, though, that by coming out and talking about this publicly, that perhaps government or the people who need to are listening? Well, I'm certainly hopeful. I mean, I certainly have been making representations to government now for quite some time, um, some years, um, in particular this last year, um, a concentrated effort. Uh, To this point, um, my my what i haven't i don't have a final answer what i've been hearing hasn't encouraged me i'm uh, the reason i've come out to talk about it is well mainly because people asked last week why did that take so long and they deserved an answer so i want to be truthful with them um, but in addition this is a real problem for my investigators they're under a tremendous amount of stress i'm i'm very worried about them i'm worried that more will leave um, and I guess primarily I'm worried about the fact that the IIO might not be able to function if we don't solve this problem, because if more leave, we're not going to be able to respond to cases. And that's something that must be avoided.
And do you feel that's coming if things continue on the way this is? It's a definite possibility, absolutely. Listen, thank you very much for your time this morning. We appreciate that. Okay, take care. Thank you very much for calling. And for your honesty on that, that's Ronald McDonald, who is the Chief Civilian Director at the Independent Investigations Office, saying they need help. They need more support. They need more money. They need to be able to recruit more employees to do the very important oversight work that they do. If not for the work of their office, there wouldn't have been uh, the work done on the Culver case, which resulted in charges being laid against RCMP officers in that death. So it's such important work there. Uh, We'll get more reaction to that if you want to weigh in simi at cknw.com this is mornings with simi you know usually when a government is about halfway through a mandate throne speeches can be pretty boring right the latest agenda setter from the ndp government a little bit different though because it's a new premier with a new agenda David Eby says his government will introduce new legislation this spring for everything from pay transparency, they want to deal with money laundering, and and more. They said there's going to be a refreshed housing strategy, more spending for health care, focused on middle-class families. And as we heard earlier with Vaughn Palmer, lots of ideas, but kind of short and vague when it comes to details. So let's get some more analysis on what we heard. Joining us now is Dr. Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Good morning, Hamish. Good morning, Simi. Now, Hamish, that sounded a little bit more ambitious than a middle-of-the-mandate throne speech. Your thoughts? Well, I would agree with Vaughn Palmer. Lots of ideas being thrown out there, um, but we're going to have to wait for all of the details. Um, we have a budget later this month. Uh, we will get a better sense, of course, where the government wants to spend money. Uh, and we know they've got a very busy uh, uh, session in the legislature this spring. Lots of new legislation coming in. The refreshed housing strategy you mentioned not coming until the fall. So we have to wait for all of these other pieces uh, before we have a a better sense of where the government wants to take us. We know the broad strokes, but not the details. And typically, what are some of the challenges of kind of being at this stage of a mandate? Well, people start to expect more results. Um, We've had an NDP government for five years, um, almost six, and... uh, um, it's perhaps never been more difficult uh, um, under under the NDP. Of course, we've just come out of COVID. We've got a very challenging economic uh, situation. Uh, we know the healthcare system is under great strain, um, and and people want some assistance um, quickly. And these things are, if not intractable problems, very difficult to solve quickly. Um, and so that's that's the challenge facing David Eby eighteen months before we have an election. Is this kind of that time when people start looking around and going, yeah, 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 but you've had lots of time to actually do some of these things? Like, how do you come up with new ideas? Well, that's the challenge. And uh, it, at this point in a mandate, it becomes difficult to blame the previous government. Uh, <laughs> governments never stopped doing that, but uh, people sort of roll their eyes when they hear that it was the problems of the government six years ago with a premier we can't remember anymore. Um, they, they get tired of hearing recycled, um, not only recycled promises, but you know, recycled ideas. I couldn't believe it in the throne speech when I read that the, the NDP had scrapped bridge tolls to help with the cost of living. <laughs> they did that five and a half years ago. <laughs> um, and uh, so people want to say, what are you going to do for me today? And, and we, David Eby's been premier now for three months. We have a good idea of where he wants to take things, 
but we still don't have the details. You know what? That's such a good point. I forgot about that one too. It's like, uh, well, we're going to run the hits too. We're going to talk about what we're going to do, but let's just remind you about how the good things that we did. But honestly, when it comes to the average person's political memory, Hamish, do we even remember good things from a week ago? No, um, it's, it's very difficult to, 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 to sustain that kind of credit because people are always facing new challenges and uh, they want, you know, thanks for that. But, you know, what have you done for me lately? Yeah. It's a response from most voters. I think also the danger with something like that is like, yeah, we would say thank you for that. But we voted for you. Not maybe not once, not even maybe twice. And so that's all in the past now. Right. It's all in the past. And each election gets more and more difficult. Um, you know, for a government to win three elections in a row is is a tall order. And uh, fortunately, David Eby's very tall. <laughs> we'll see if he's up to the task. <laughs> One of the other interesting things about this was um, the the emphasis on mental health and addictions, which is something we heard the opposition talking about this week, too. And uh, yeah, it turns out the government also has some big plans on that. So is this something that when you're the opposition, you have to be a little bit aware of. You might come up with these great ideas, but you might end up losing them because the government's going to take them. That's right. Uh, Kevin Havalkin had a big announcement on that last week. I thought it was a, a, a good move by him. Uh, it's highlighting an issue which I think is uh, top of mind for a lot of people. It's, it's connected to the homelessness crisis, the addictions crisis that we're seeing on the streets, the crime issues. Um, and the Liberals, of course, have a, a reputation, particularly Kevin Falcon, for fiscal austerity. But here he was showing a willingness to spend money to address a very serious problem. Uh, but uh, you're right. He, uh, it, it's quite possible the NDP could could steal his his idea. Now, the NDP have the responsibility of executing the idea, and it's easier to say it than do it. That is also very true. Did, and also, did you notice this seemed to be more of an emphasis on middle income British Columbians, and more so, I would say, than than past speeches? Oh, I'm not sure if it was more so than last speeches, but I think there was a recognition in this speech. I thought the tone was right. They saying right mm-hmm. at the outset that we're in difficult economic uh, times and that lots of people are struggling, uh, that uh, they've heard that message. Um, they, again, repeated the things that they have done to date to help uh, the affordability credit, the ICBC rebates, even the bridge tolls, as I mentioned, uh, but no specifics about what's going to come next to help uh, people with, with this immediate crisis of affordability. And when it comes to a throne speech, though, how much of that is something that a government sticks to? Like in your experience of observing throne speeches, how significant are they? Well, they're so vague that they're hard to hold governments accountable. Um, but they, they do outline some broad strokes that they're going to have, say, a refreshed housing strategy. They're going to introduce legislation uh, with respect to that in the fall. That's, that was also interesting that legislation is coming in the, in the fall. I think that puts off talk of a snap election for, for this year. Uh, but when we see that legislation, um, does it live up to advanced billing? That's a really good point. Um, So you feel like if they're making a commitment to do something like that in the fall, how can we have an election in the spring? Uh, Well, this spring and next fall, I think uh, I think it rules out an election uh, this year. Um, I guess they could go early next year, but I think that, you know, why go six months in advance? Um, So I I think, you know, David Eby's always said that he would stick to the original schedule, which puts the election 18 months out. And the throne speech sort of indicated that that's what's going to happen. Interesting. All right. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. 
It's an absolutely tragic situation that is unfolding in Turkey and Syria. In Turkey, they have declared a state of emergency. We know that the death toll in Turkey has surpassed uh, 3,700 people. In Syria, it's about 1,700 people and growing by all accounts. And time seems to be running out for rescue workers to find more people trapped beneath the rubble after that 7.8 magnitude earthquake. Here's another problem. It's been identified that the only border crossing between Syria and Turkey that is essentially approved for transporting international aid back and forth between those two countries, it's not working because of earthquake damage to the roads leading to that particular route. That's how much trouble uh, they are in right now. So everybody seems to be mobilizing to try to help. And I know Canadians are wondering how they can help as well. Joining us now is Helen Barkley-Hollins, who's a manager at World Vision Canada. Helen, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Simi. You're yeah. right, it really is heartbreaking, the whole situation. It's a crisis on top of a crisis in that area of the world. It really does feel that way. Now, can you tell us a bit about what is the Humanitarian Coalition? So the Humanitarian Coalition, of which we are a member as World Vision, it's a collaboration of Canadian aid agencies, and we all work together to raise funds so that humanitarian relief can be delivered quickly and effectively, um, exactly for these kinds of situations. Okay, has it geared up to get to work here in this ta- in this case? Yes, we have. Um, we were working round the clock yesterday and we've launched um, a website today, which is together.ca, um, that is inviting donations. And across 12 agencies, 12 Canadian um, agencies, we are going to be responding. And many of us are already. Okay. And, and in what ways are we able to respond? Because it sounds like it's just an incredibly chaotic situation there, Helen. It is. Um, we are already there. Um for World Vision, we've been there um, working in that region since 2011, um, and we're responding to the immediate needs. Um, we are seeing many people uh, out on the streets in snow and rain. Um, we're getting sub-zero temperatures at night. People are sleeping on the streets or in cars or in makeshift camps. Um, many of the buildings are either destroyed or are still unstable. And so we're responding, providing shelter, um, providing medical care to those who've been injured, Things like ready-to-eat meals, blankets, essential items, hygiene kits, of course, clean water. There's been an ongoing cholera outbreak in the region as well. So this is really a dire situation, um, and we are we are all there to respond, and we are actively responding. How do you determine what is needed, and then how, how fast can you get it there? So for many of us, uh, World Vision included, we have teams already there in the area. We're working through partners um, to be able to deliver the support, of course, we are assessing the damage and needs. This is a huge earthquake. It's one of the strongest earthquakes in 100 years. Um, and our team is there to assess the stage and the, the, to know the full scale um, of the response that is required. It's a crisis that's still evolving. Um, we're seeing shortages of clean water, shortages of fuel. The airport is closed. You've talked about the roads being damaged. Um, there's huge need there and need for us um, to be active in that situation. So what will happen in the days and the, and the next couple of weeks here, Helen? So we're working closely um, as a collaboration of aid agencies. We're working with partners on the ground um, to find out what the needs are, to uh, direct support, to be able to get the aid so urgently needed, and to continue assessing um, the, the situation. We're seeing that it's a an incredibly desperate situation, especially for children. Many of those who are in that region, particularly in northwest Syria, were already displaced by conflict. And they now face this harsh winter 
outside trying to come to terms with uh, both the earthquake and the subsequent aftershocks. Um, there's a lot of fear um, and that fear continues. Can One we- of our team members told us she was woken up in the middle of the night the house started shaking. She ran to her children. And in that moment, it happened so quickly. She didn't know which one to carry. And she describes that minute of time, like years of helplessness and fear. And that's something that's common that we're hearing back from our teams there on the ground. Ah, what a terrifying choice to have to make. And that, that decision just sounds awful. How, will you be able to send more people to help as well? So we already are. Um, we've mobilized our teams. Teams have been traveling since yesterday to join those already on the ground responding. Um, we are directing funds as they come in directly to partners that are supporting those who are experts in medical care, those who already have access to resources, such as I mentioned before, the blankets as essential items that people are needing in this immediate aftermath of the crisis. Okay, so how can people help? You mentioned together.ca. Yes, together.ca. Please go there. Please click donate. Please provide um, what you can. And this will help provide the care and support for those children and families that are at an increased risk of displacement, hunger and illness. Um, Also, for those who pray, please do pray. Pray for the safety of these children and families. Many who are displaced as a result of the conflicts now face this huge added challenge um, to life um, this winter. Okay, so is it mainly monetary donations right now that is needed? Yes, in an emergency situation, that's the easiest way for us to get the much needed aid uh, right directly to those who need it most. All right, well, thank you so much for telling us about it this morning, Helen. Thank you so much for the time.